History Lecture 96, Rebbe Bleiweiss. The, um, during this incredibly tumultuous period, I, I, I bring this in by way of just a footnote, there lived one of the great names of the Achronim, his full name was Rav Yosef Toomim. Um, we know of him as the pre-Migodim, one of the major uh, works of the Achronim, if you learn halacha in almost every area of halacha, primigadim figures prominently. Um, in some yeshivas, it's a prerequisite. You have to know your primigadim before you can get in. He primigadim is the name of a commentary written by this Rav Yosef Toomim, whose dates are very much parallel to the dates, similar to the dates of the Vilna Gaon. Um, his commentary explains the shach and the taz, and effectively much of the Shulchan Aruch as a result. Um, he was a Rav in Frankfurt. He was one of the post-Kehador. Um, and he was one of the examples, and we'll find others like this, who was far removed by choice from the many controversies of the day. And uh, that's sometimes a product of personality and vision. Um, it's it's uh, sometimes a strength, sometimes not, but it, it, it's, it, that was just... The way the way he did it, I, I think in, in our gener in our let's say the more recent generation, I think to contrast two two figures, the Stipe Gaon, who's perceived as one of the greatest Torah minds of of, of the last period, um, deliberately and self consciously stayed away from politics. Um, his close friend and neighbor Rav Shach was extremely involved in politics and um, it simply played different roles. Fine. Uh, that's I, I mentioned him because even though he you know he doesn't get a long elaboration here his impact is immense. Um, changing gears, I mentioned that I'd be introducing him. Uh, there's a family by the name of Rothschild who just around this time, just during the 1700s, emerges as a force. Um, originally, they come from Germany. Uh, then they then they're really across Europe. Um, by the end of the 19th century, they possessed the largest private fortune in the world. In the world, in other words. In other words, nobody uh, came close, and these, these are Jewish people, so the irony of history of the Jews and their uh, subjugated status certainly doesn't predict that there would be such a phenomenon such as the Rothschilds. The, the, um, Today, the name Rothschild, in, in many circles, Jewish and otherwise, is synonymous with wealth, with great wealth. Uh, to illustrate this, the, how was that with this? You know, Fiddler on the Roof is a popular uh, play based on stories of Shalom Aleichem and the Yiddish, uh, the Yiddish speaking, um, uh, depiction of the Yiddish speaking shtetl. So, um, if I were a rich man, is rendered in Hebrew, Lu Haiti Rothschild. Zaga 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 Diga Zaga Diga Zaga Dum. They were pioneers in the field of private multinational banking. Um, there really was nothing quite like it ever before. They also represented the possible uh, the possibility, which is a new possibility, that Jews maybe could integrate in the open non Jewish society. Um, I describe these things, you know, trying to keep a neutral tone, but you can't be neutral. These will have some maybe positive, uh, you know, aspects to it, but there's a lot of understandable negativity from a traditional perspective. Um, we usually don't do well when we're given opportunities to integrate into the greater society. 
Um, in general, their success is a mixed blessing. Um, in the positive end, we're going to see one particular Rothschild, the Baron, um, we, we mentioned him when we went on a teal a couple of weeks ago, will be one of the great philanthropists, um, also with something of a mixed record, but uh, certainly helpful to the Jews trying to return in, in significant um, numbers and make an impact in Eretz Israel, especially in the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. Um, but their success would certainly encourage other Jews to try to imitate them, and it encouraged assimilation. Um, it also gave um, apparent proof, or so-called proof, for the anti-Semites who, <coughs> um, based on the model of the, of the Rothschilds, came up with their idea of, of anti-Semitism, of the stereotypes of the Jews, um, as being um, the, the, uh, part of the international conspiracy to rise up and, and swallow the world, and even though we're not quite at the, at, the, uh, at the publication of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, it's not so much of a stretch uh, where that comes from. Of the? Yeah, something like that. Now, they all start, the patriarch of the family is Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who um, is from the 1760s, he really emerges. He lived in Frankfurt on Main also, meaning exactly the same place where the Prima Godim was the Rav. Uh, so so um, Mayor Amschel was a mercantile agent. Eventually, he moved into the area of banking, and he had an idea. He had very talented sons, and he sent them, four of them, um, to four major cities across Europe, Paris, London, Vienna, and Naples. And... Um, each of them established their own banking system, and because they're all part of the same family, they all worked together and thereby became, as I said, an international system of banking, which had sudden um, incredible advantages. Um, people now felt a greater security if they're, if, because if your local bank is dependent on the uh, events surrounding our society, yes, our society is somewhat unstable. But if somehow it's interconnected to the greater society, even if our government falls, yes, but at least there are links abroad and, and, and there's greater security. So increasingly people would place their trust in such a system. Um, one of the four sons is James Rothschild. He's the father of the Baron of Baron Edmund Rothschild. If you're trying to put all the personalities together, um, he's actually one of five sons and he was the one who went to Paris and arguably was the most, even though they were all phenomenally successful, he was arguably the most successful. He became one of the richest men in the world. Um, people calculate his fortune based on inflation and estimate that today he'd be worth five times Bill Gates. Um, yeah. That's, um, I guess if you must calculate it, for, I, I don't know about for you, for me, when I start getting into these higher figures, it all kind of levels out and means nothing. He was very rich. The, uh, yeah, my point exactly. Can I buy a candy bar with that? The, um, more than just that. They would be, among other areas of impact, they'd be central in establishing the world's first um, railroad line that was laid across Europe. Um, later, uh, 
with, with the same backing from the Rothschilds, they would establish the first railroad system in, in, in Eretz Yisrael, opening in 1892. I ask you why we have the light rail. That's a separate question. The, um, some of them did retain some Yiddishkeits. Um, most of them didn't. Most of them succumbed to the lure of modernity. Because when, you're, when you have it all, the idea, the prospect of keeping Tyra, uh, I mean, all in terms of, in, in, in this worldly terms, so the idea of keeping Tyra becomes increasingly fraught and difficult. <clears throat> this is all what I'm doing right now is I'm painting a background to this whole complex time and this phase in history that we're referring to as the Enlightenment. It's also sometimes referred to as the Emancipation. Emancipation is a pretty highfalutin word, though. Emancipation is if we were all in prison. At some level, I guess we were. And then somehow we were emancipated. We were let out of the prison. The shtetl wall, um, I guess, I guess, ceremoniously fell down, even though that never quite happened like that. Um, but there are many, many simultaneous phenomena that, that led to the assimilation of Jews and to the abandonment of Tyra. Um, a major one. It occurs in 1781 in the form of what was called the Edicts of Toleration, which actually came out of Austria. Emperor Joseph II, with these edicts, officially now allows Jews to study in university. What motivates him? It's not the first time. There, there, there may have been some um, press, there were precedent for this, meaning Jews managed to get around the system and, and with extraordinary uh, ex exception to the rule, some of them managed to make it into university anyway. But now, think about it, 1871, they're now officially allowed to go to university. New opportunities are opened up to them that never existed before. Pay attention also, this is Austria, so we're more in Central Europe. Most of these developments take place in the West, not in Eastern Europe. So, um, now that they can go to university, uh, why would he do this? What was his motivation? So it's actually a very cynical uh, story. The, I mean, the cynical take on the story is that um, he owed the Rothschilds a debt. They helped him back his wars. And so as a gratitude, it's called the gratitude, he said, what do I care about policy? He, um, he agreed to their request that, they, that he, he make it possible for Jews to attend university. He probably never imagined where that would lead Meaning now Jews have all kinds of um, opportunities opened up before them uh, in trade, in business, in academic pursuits, in, in, in medical profession, in law, um, and, and, and the Jews really grabbed this opportunity. Eli, we're setting the backdrop to this increasing phase we call the Enlightenment, the Emancipation, where the Jews are um, very abruptly, after a long phase in history, moving out of the shtetl and into the world. And one of them, one of the first stages we just said, and not, not only the success of the Rothschilds, but the um, edicts of toleration that permit Jews for the first time officially to go to university. How, uh, how expensive was it? Like, could, could they afford it? That's a really good question. I don't know the practical story of this, but Jews being um, resourceful people, right, would often, would often somehow scrape together the necessary necessary means also you have a powerful family like the Rothschilds backing the whole enterprise. It was in their interest that in general this should succeed. So if you have promising youth who, who uh, you know, might be able to, yeah, exactly. So certainly there, were, there, were, there was money available. Um, 
just to give, again, to paint a lot of different simultaneous, paint the backdrop and give a lot of uh, sense of a lot of simultaneous developments. The same year of the, of the Edicts of Toleration in 1781, and keep in mind, what's going on, what else is going on in 1781 that we've learned? This is in the height of the conflict between the Hasidim and the Misnagdim, right? This is, um, these are the days that the Chidah is roaming the world, collecting money for the bedraggled Jewish communities in Eretz Yisrael, and there's much going on simultaneously. And in the same year, a non-Jew by the name of Christian Wilhelm Dome published a book called, no, he was not, yeah, uh, called On the Improvement of the Jews as Citizens, which is certainly um, one, of, uh, one example of a, of a classic anti-Semitic tirade, but it's worthy of mention for our discussion. First, he doesn't even attempt to, dis to disguise his... Um, his hatred, his contempt for Jewish for the Jewish people. Today, you have anti-Semitism, but it's so um, non-PC to be anti-Semitic that you have to mask it somehow. Uh, often, people mask it into the guise of anti-Zionism. But um, here, there was no problem. It was perfectly fine to to make fun of the Jews uh, in the course of trying to figure out what to do with the Jews. Increasingly, we're going to find that. Um, the anti-Semites, which is most of the world, will talk about Jews in terms of the Jewish problem. Meaning, what do we do with them? We don't really want them. We don't want them to have their own country, though. So what, we, what, what, what should be done with these Jews? Wouldn't it be great if they just went away? And, and, and we're not that far away from, from uh, people who tried to uh, come up with that. Um, his writings, he said, the best approach, given the fact that we don't really have much to do with the Jews, is um, we should civilize them. And he represents now a new wave, a new, a new ideology that increasingly is going to be um, accepted in the West, especially we're going to see in France, with the French Revolution, of, um, okay, let's, let's get the Jew out of his Jewish mold, certainly get him out of that ridiculous getup that he wears, uh, have him abandon those archaic um, rituals that he maintains, give him a good education, and make him integral into the society, make him a part of society. And that's what he wrote about. With all of this in the background, the walls of the shtetl called the ghetto. What does ghetto mean? These are what the ghetto literally means: the foundry gates, <coughs> gates of a walled city, usually that are locked at night. So if the ghetto falls, if the gate, if the, if the locked gate falls apart, so now the Jews have freedom; they can go outside. Um, and, and within a very short time, the ghetto walls fell down. Um, I should comment though. We shouldn't have an idealized picture of the past. The past is incredibly complicated. I hope, if anything, this class has kind of made that clear, that um, there are a lot of conflicting problems, a lot of issues. Um, the ghetto was not an idealized place, so that sometimes you get the impression, I remember thinking this once, that you know, in the, in the ghetto we were all uh, fiddler on the roof again, and we were all kind of like happily poor, but like traditional, everything was, 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 was fine. Uh, there was a lot of rot, a lot of problems, a lot of decline, even within the Jewish community, and um, especially with Shaktai Tzvi and with other kinds of um, and with the developments of the of the Renaissance. Um, that was uh, it's not the Jews didn't become assimilated overnight. The process had, had begun before, but now that the now that the opportunities were newly open to them, um, they would abandon what was a lot of in the ghetto squalor, poverty. They had. Um, can't imagine this in our days, but you know the, the the high degree, the high number of deaths in in childbirth, both the children and the mothers, 
Uh, medicine was very backwards, and if you're in a poor place, you had very few, um, very few resources. There was tremendous infighting, as we've been talking about, between the Jews. When they had the opportunity, many, when they had first opened up, they ran uh, towards assimilation. The, uh, as we say, reform movement, as it's about to come, didn't arrive in a vacuum. And um, often, sadly, many of the negative circumstances were associated with religion and with rabbis. Not always fairly, but you know, what do we do? If we have a problem in our life, we blame the leader. It's a natural kind of, a, of, a, of an impulse to do that. And um, the rabbi is the one who's supposed to be solving all of our problems. Isn't he? He's supposed to be not only the religious role model and tzaddik, but he's supposed to solve all of our problems. But with the problems that the Jewish people are confronting by the end of the 18th century, if you've been considering it, the interminable exile, the conflicts, Hasidus, Miznagdish, that's more in Eastern Europe, but still, it's too much for any one person, even at tzaddik. And so um, often there's disillusionment, um, there's going to be more rebellion. Um, and what we see in the form of the Hasidic Revolution and then in the West, the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, um, are manifestation of this alienation, of this disillusionment with, these, with the Jewish establishment. Um, okay, meanwhile, I mean, just to com complicate the picture, I mean, this, these are such tumultuous times, so much is going on. Um, you got to imagine, and this is a time in the world still, it hasn't debated since the Renaissance began a couple centuries earlier, and the Protestant Reformation has taken over, um, and, and um, now is a time of immense colonial expansion. Europe is trying to you know, broaden its reach and try to reach uh, much of the world, and, and each of the various powers is, not all of them, but many of them are vying for world domination. Um, it's a very messianic time. The feeling that Jesus was coming back any day now was very much in the air. And part of um, classic Protestant, or really more so Calvinism, a Calvinist spirit, not all of them were Calvinists, but the, the Christians, which, who are extremely superstitious by, by nature, often see the world as proof. Whatever you're doing in the world, that proves that you are on top and that God loves you. So if you're successful, if you... If you let's say, formed the empire that dominates the world, that really shows that you and your brand of Christianity, and Christianity is extremely sectarian, um, is the one that Jesus himself has chosen. So um, with this co competition for, uh, you know, for, for, for dominance, the Americas that had been discovered, so-called so, so, so discovered by the, by the, by the Western powers, um, suddenly become not only attractive, but now critical for realizing their colonial visions, their ideal of, 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 of dominating the world. And um, we know that this is a process that began as early, I mean, before you know, Columbus left, but um, we know that the expansion took, took place throughout the 1500s. Jews were there almost from the beginning. Remember the suspicion that Columbus himself may have been Jewish. We know for sure some of his uh, chief officers were Jewish. And we know that um, in small numbers, mostly Sephardi Jews, came in the, in the 1500s to the Americas. Some of the famous family names are still known. They include the Levies, the Turos, as in, like for example, Turo College, uh, or synagogue, correct. Um, the Solomons and others. Um, and what they found in America, many of them were still religious. What they found in America was unusual. Certainly, I mean, almost unprecedented in Jewish history. 
that they could somehow exist as Jews in a relatively free, open society was actually very attractive. And it created a phenomenon. There was envy in, in, in their cousins overseas who learned about what the Jews were doing in America. Um, there's a Rav by the name of Shaps, Rav Chaim Shapsai of Salonika who wrote what was probably the first tshuva that was, he lived in Greece, obviously, in Salonika, but he's writing a tshuva answering a shaila from American Jews. Um, yeah, that's already, that's already in the late 1500s. Um, that's, that's, so we, we know that that already tells us that they were religious, they were questing, they were, they were trying to maintain a connection with uh, religious authorities. Of course, the problem is one that we're going to see. We're going to talk about America a lot, but I'm, we're, I'm introducing the Americas now uh, because it's around this time that we, we, we find them emerge, the, Amer the, Jewish, uh, the Jews of America emerging in significant ways. Um, the Americas are, both North and South, become so accepting of the Jews that, sadly, the descendants of most of these original families are no longer Jewish. Intermarriage and ignorance, some of them may be Jewish, they don't even realize it, uh, would, would overwhelm them. Is, is, is Turo College the, the same Turo? Right? Yeah, so that's so in the same Turo. In fact, if you go to the first community outside of the walls of Jerusalem, um, the first Jewish community to be built outside of the walls of Jerusalem, anybody know? Come on, Ilan, do it for us here. Mishkan Hashanim, more accurately, correct? Mishkan is the is the fifth, much later. But why? Mishkan Hashanim. Like, I, I don't know. Why do people say Mishkan? Because like one is right next to the other, but the original was Mishkan Hashanim many years before. And the founder of Mishkan Hashanim, people, people are used to thinking of Sir Moses Montefiore, who we're going to meet soon enough. But actually, if you look at the original dedication, it's dedicated to Jacob Turo. He gave a lot of the seed money. Really, Sir Moses Montefiore was the mover and shaker to make the whole thing come off. But Turo was the one who, who, uh, who, who funded it to a large degree. Um, until 1830, anybody know what the largest Jewish uh, community in the Americas was? It's not something you would guess if you didn't know. Philadelphia, Boston, Alabama. None of the above. Oh, you're not far with Alabama. Uh, yeah, no. Charleston, South Carolina, of all places. Um, right? This would all change radically in the 1800s, which we're not at quite yet, but it would all change with the massive immigration, first of Ger German Jews in the mid-century, and then the much larger immigration of the Eastern European Jews beginning from the 1880s. Anybody's, uh, anybody, any, any people here who are American have family who, who uh, came to, were either German? German already back to, in? Eastern Europe. Yeah, Eastern Europe. Most, I have, yeah, Right, okay. Are you saying you traces back to the 1820s? Okay, that's impressive. That is impressive. Most people can't. Um, one of the students I was very close to last year it comes from a Savannah, Georgia family of, uh, you know who? Oh, yeah, Baruch. Benji. Yeah, Benji. Right. So his, his, family, his family had been for many, many generations German Jews who had settled in, in Savannah, Georgia, um, of all places, and were traditional and against the odds actually maintained their tradition. Uh, which was, in, in light of the American history, quite extraordinary. Literally extraordinary. That just usually did not happen. Most people in the Americas would assimilate. Um, okay. Here's a personality. We're talking about the Enlightenment today. A uh, personality that's you can't really talk about it without associating it with him, and that would be, of course, Moses Mendelssohn. 
Um, his dates are also around the same. He's, he's a little younger than the Vilnagon, but it's, it's a, he's 1729 to 1786. Um, he's considered the founder of the Jewish Enlightenment. 1786, he died. He's considered the founder. Um, sometimes he's called the founder of reform. But if you called him that, if you told him what the reform movement was going to mean, he would have winced, he would have winced and been offended. And um, the truth is, is the reform themselves deny connection to Mendelssohn, and I'll explain both of those phenomena. Um, well, I'll explain it right now. Um, he considered himself a practicing religious Jew. I'm not reformed, he would have said. And the reform was, was that? Was well, let's let 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 me present the uh, the, the material, and you'll decide. Um, the um, the reform, for their part, didn't really subscribe to his brand of uh, his his approach to modernity. They had a different vision, and I'm going to describe it soon as well. So, um, one thing I have to say about Mendelssohn specifically, and then the Haskalah in general, is that um, the Haskalah is not so much an organized movement. Let's contrast it with the, you know, it's really, it's really simultaneous with Hasidus. Hasidus um, was a movement with a founder, a vision. Uh, you know, there's really, uh, you can almost trace it lineal, in a lineal kind of a fashion, you know, from beginning, middle to, well, process, we're still in the process, but um, it, was, it was a self-conscious movement. Um, enlightenment was a process with lots of, as I keep saying today, lots of different aspects to it, but it wasn't so much something that people sat back and said, "Hey, let's have let's let's get enlightened now." Um, it was very much a reactionary series of processes um, responding to all the various dynamics of the time. So those of you who came in late, you missed a lot of the strands with the the edicts of tolerance and the Rothschilds and all the various um, influences and forces going on in the world, often overlapping and interrelated. Um, that created the ground, the groundwork for the Enlightenment to happen. Well, really, went earlier than that, though, too. Like, in the secular world, too, especially with like for the sure, Protestant Reformation plays a part. Spinoza plays a part. Shabbat Tzvi for the Jewish, the Jewish people plays a part. All of these strands are connected, as I've been, as I've been trying to give over. The um, who was Mendelssohn? Mendelssohn was a somebody who was not a Talmud Chacham per se, although he was a he was a learned Jew. Uh, he was on a he was on a warm personal level with no less than the Nodeb Yehuda, whose name has come up a lot in the last few days. Nodeb Yehuda was a great figurehead for Jews and certainly was involved in all the various um, issues of the day throughout the 1700s, and Mendelssohn certainly knew him. We, we have some of their letters that they wrote back and forth. Um, he was also an interesting figure. He was short. He was hunched back. Um, Frederick the Great said that the Lord put fine wine in an ugly flask about Mendelssohn, which reminds me, Lahav deal, because uh, Mendelssohn is not a tzaddik from our perspective. Um, anybody, anybody can think of a figure in the Talmud who is described in a similar way? I almost don't want to tell um, three of you here because um, we're going to be Bezrash Hashem in, in, in uh, less than 48 hours standing by his kever. Wait, was it Atana or Namora? Atana. You're right. You're good, Dan. You got it. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah. Hi. 
Okay, anyways. That's the one I said right the other day, though. When I was like, study in the University of Berlin and pay attention to Berlin as it's going to figure metaphorically. Berlin is going to be equated no less. It'll be called by enlightened assimilating Jews um, the New Jerusalem. So the fact that Mendelssohn, the architect, or not the architect, that gives him too much credit, but the, the, the main figure, let's say, associated with the Enlightenment would go to university, would be the first Jew ever at the University of Berlin is significant. Um, but to his credit, he was said never to have missed Mincha. It was said that he never lacked tzitzit. Um, and he, as we said, was warm and friendly with not just the nobody, note of Yehuda, but of other rabbinim of, of his day. And it was his perspective, he was convinced that since he could maintain his observance, others could as well. Um, by the end of his life, I should note, he, even his observance foundered somewhat. I mean, he was not as firm as he started. Now, what, what, was, his, what was his view exactly? Why, was he, why did he have to be so defensive? Why did he have to say, you know, you could be religious too if you'd be like me? He said his major idea, and this is where we obviously depart, <laughs> our, our perspective definitely departs, he said that he could explain every aspect of Jewish observance rationally. Now, this is new. Even though we, we certainly encountered rationalism and Aristotelianism and, and, and the accusations against the Rambam and the Ralbag and many others, but um, he's the first to actually say that all of observance can be explained. What, what do we mean by rationally? Yeah, in ways, exactly, in ways that, that conform to our logic. You know, forget miracles, forget mysticism. That, that's, that's out the door. And, and here's the, here's the, here's the catch, this is the corollary that kind of kills it here, if he couldn't explain it rationally, then it could be rejected. Okay? And he was What's that? And he was Yes, it's a reminder. We need reminders. No, we, we need to remind ourselves. Practically, this came out. Most things, like Titsi, you'd say, oh, that's irrational, but no. Most things, if you're clever enough, can in fact be explained. What about shotness? Um, good question. Good question. I don't. I have to admit. I have to admit, and I have to say, I'm proud about this particular uh, fact about myself. I'm not expert in the teachings of Moses Mendelssohn, so I don't know case by case what he would say. I can say, however, that on a general basis, much of observance can be <coughs> formulated in rational terms, and that's what he did, and that's why he really could consider himself or or. <laughs> had the illusion of himself as being effectively, essentially, a, a religious Jew. Wait, was he the grandson of Amos Mendelssohn? No, 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 hold up, hold up, that's coming soon. Um, but his approach, and at some level, it's, I call this the anti-Nasevenishma approach to Judaism, meaning, by definition, Torah's always been about faith. And I keep mitzvahs first and last because the Kaddish Baruch Hu said, said so. Even those mishpatim, I'm not referring to chukim here, but mishpatim, mitzvahs that can be explained in human terms that we can understand and relate to, can be uh, understood. Um, even so, the Gemara says, and all the posts can bring this down, that our first relationship to all the mitzvahs is ma'ayase 
Avinu Shabbat Shalom What can I do? The, my, my Father in Heaven decreed this on me, and I have an obligation, whether I understand it, agree with it, or not. Comes Mendelssohn, and, and arguably you could, you could counter that even those mitzvahs that he is keeping may not be even mitzvahs. Because if it's all about having to um, conform to his intellect, maybe that's not even called serving Hashem at all. If our attitude towards keeping mitzvahs is it's got to be doing, fun, we're fundamentally just doing Hashem's bidding, that by definition is not a rational concept. Um, he was a strong advocate, and you can hear how the logic would follow, of change within religious life. He felt that the whole religious world had to reorganize itself around tradition, excuse me, around modernity. He was, for example, um, he said Jews should stop dressing Jewishly. Synagogues should stop looking like Jewish synagogues. They should look like standard places, places of worship that anybody, and of course by anybody, who does he mean? Any Christian, Any Christian could feel at home in. Um, one of the um, one of the big maskilim by the name uh, a Jew by the name of Yehuda Leib Gordon coined the movement's motto, but it could be said that this was really Mendelssohn's motto, or certainly epitomized by Mendelssohn. He said, "Be a cosmopolitan man in the street and a Jew in your home." Know people like this? You must know people like this. They're all over the world. Mendelssohn will cast quite a quite a quite a giant shadow. Um, on, on, well, it depends which brand of modern orthodoxy. Modern orthodoxy is quite the um, quite the range, and you absolutely find people who live by this in modern orthodoxy. And I would agree then, if they really, if this is their uh, modus operandi, and whether they realize it or not, they're really following in sync with with Moses Mendelssohn's ideology. Then it's it's questionable just how religious they are. Moses Mendelssohn was the first Jew to learn in the University of Berlin. So they didn't, get, not just before the Holocaust, he's, he's dominant, he's influential already in the mid to late 1700s. So you get this idea, cosmopolitan man in the street, a Jew in your home. Yes, of course we keep kosher in the home, but we eat in other restaurants because we don't want to you know, limit our options kind of an idea. And it's not just about kashrus, it's, about a, it's a whole way of, of living life. Mendelssohn himself was one of the first Jews to, be, to win prestige in the non-Jewish world. Non-Jews uh, revered him. He was personally very close with such icons of the day. Immanuel Kant, one of the most influential of philosophers in the world. Um, Gottfried Lessing and others um, were, 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 you know, were, were very were beholden to uh, Mendelssohn. His works included, probably most influential, he translated the Chumash into German. Okay, well that's not the first time it's gonna happen, but his translation <laughs> includes a, a commentary. It's a perush. Now to be fair, the perush does draw from Shas and Midrashim. It, it reflects that he, he, he knows something. He knows about our tradition. Um, subtly, it's also pluralistic. It's a, it's a work that shows a clear debt to, among others, Baruch Spinoza. Um, he wrote a book called Jerusalem uh, that generally addresses the position of the Jews in the world at large. That also has a traditional um, tinge, but full of this new ideology, this new emancipation that he would have defended on Torah grounds. 
His hope, listen to this, hold the thought for a second. His hope was that his, what would be the goal of his Chumash? His Chumash would, well, of course, we would like for any Chumash to educate Jews, especially assimilated Jews, as many Jews were becoming increasingly ignorant. But his, his major hope was that his Chumash would teach Jews how to, how to use and understand German better. You get that? Meaning it's a vehicle for assimilation because the Jews don't know German well enough and how do they expect to be this cosmopolitan successful man out there in the culture at large without knowing it? So that was his, that was his what we would say backwards, inverted um, form of, of, of influence that he, he tried to influence Jews and he would be successful way beyond his wildest dreams in ways that probably should he come back to life uh, and so on, he will deeply regret by his own by his own ideology, what he would spawn, what he would, what he would um, start and trigger, uh, would go in a direction that he would not have been happy with. Um, many, in fact, heard his message loud and clear, and they came up with a conclusion that he didn't have, but they figured, listen, if our goal is acculturation, let's make it in the world at large, why be Jewish? Wouldn't it just be easier if you simply converted and thereby fully integrated in Christian society? It makes sense. Right? Who needs the tradition? So um, we're going to see now emerging in the coming, in the coming decades um, not just assimilated Jews, but wildly successful assimilated Jews. On a certain level, I mean, the ultimate cosmopolitans in the streak, I'm going to throw out a few names of some of the Jews that will dominate in, in, in Germany uh, centrally. Uh, some of the, some of the, the great names really come out of, or many of them at least, come out of Germany. Um, I'll cite Heinrich, Heinrich Hein, who is um, considered the, um, he's, he was considered the uh, poet laureate of the German culture until the Holocaust. The Holocaust, they tried to erase any, any vestige of him, but he wrote, it was hard to do that because he wrote the German poem that was seen as the epitome of German culture called the Lorelei. Uh, Lorelei. Um, also from this period, Benjamin or Benjamin Disraeli, who became um, he became a foreign minister under in, under um, in, in 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 Great Britain. He was considered the architect of Victorian imperialism. Right, that, that's a big impact in the world. Um, and perhaps you've heard the name Karl Marx. Okay, oh, it's Marx. a direct. You have to draw a line. Nobody's born in a vacuum. You know, so you have, to, you have to see the processes of history and, and, and be able to connect what, what Moses Mendelssohn started. Karl Marx, on a certain level, is, a, is an ideological des descendant. Um, Mendelssohn himself had six children. Four of them... What did Mendelssohn say about it? Like, he didn't talk about the economy, right? No. So Marx, yeah, we'll get to Marx. Um, Mendelssohn had six children, four of whom converted to Christianity. That tells you a lot. Um, he himself was a self-made Jew. That's not true. If you, well, if you read everything that he wrote about Marx, he, he very easily... Are you, are you in Karl Marx or are you in Moses Mendelssohn? Huh? You're in Karl Marx already. I'm still back in Mendelssohn. You just said Marx. I did, yeah. to illustrate some of the Jews who would come from Mendelssohn's ideology. And then back to Mendelssohn, who was definitely not a self-hating Jew, he would have he would have bristled. He would have said, "No, I'm I'm, I'm a great Jew. I'm, a, I'm I love Hashem. I love the Torah. You know the parts that I can explain." 
Um, almost all of Mendelssohn's grandchildren converted as well. Um, if you think about that, that means it's a self-imposed kares. Think about the what is kares? Kares means your soul dies, spiritual death. You and your descendants get cut off. So by his own ideology, his family shrugged his shoulders and said, yeah, you're right, granddad. Uh, let's join the Christians. Um, Akiva, you were right. It's his grandson, Felix, was one of the most famous composers of all times. His, he has another grandson named Alexander, who's considered the last of his descendants to observe halacha, meaning no other grandson, grandchild was keeping halacha, and Alexander's family also didn't, didn't maintain uh, tradition. He was the last. The end of the line, as it were. Um, there's a historian who wrote a book called the, the History of the Jews by the name of Paul Johnson. He, uh, he summed it up. He said, in the 19th century, a man, get this, is a great, very, very uh, perceptive point. A man felt he had to become a Christian in the 19th century in the same way he felt that he had to learn English in the 20th century. Um, I mentioned that Reform rejected Mendelssohn. Their idea, they saw themselves initially as a movement to stop conversion. They didn't like the conversion. Their idea was stay Jewish, and what do we do? What, what is the point of reform? We're going to create a culturally German Jewish option. Yeah? So they, 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 they were not about um, complete assimilation. They said, no, no, be Jewish, but, you know, be part of the society at large. Um, in fact, even though they said you don't have to convert, uh, one, of the, one of the famous rabbis connected with Asia Torres, Rav Monty Berger, has a wonderful presentation where he shows, in fact, how, uh, I, I've mentioned this before, but he does it better than me, um, how much reform, certainly classic reform, has much more in common with Judaism, with, with Christianity than it has with Judaism. Um, I'm reminded in considering the example of Moses Mendelssohn of the uh, famous Gemara in Tomid, the Gemara asks, Ezu, excuse me, it's a Mishnah who asks, that asks, Ezu Chocham, who's a wise man? But it's not the same thing, not the same answer as we find in Perkei Avos. <laughs> you should know this. Haroe es ha nolad. If you see something, literally nolad, something you're about to give birth, if you see the end results of what you're about to do, um, a wise person thinks about his words before they come out of his mouth to know that they will have repercussions. Three moves ahead, like every action. Every, and of course, words and actions, everything you do, Ezu Chochamaros and Nolad, Mendelssohn probably never anticipated the long term impact of his ideas. Um, this is around, I'm, I'm going to take a, a slight break from the Enlightenment to, uh, to discuss, to discuss uh, a couple other dynamics of this time. Um, it's around this time that last names become official. Jews often had last names for centuries. Um, but now, um, traditionally, we're called by usually our parents, right? Uh, either, you know, anybody have a parent's last name here, have something, Jakobsen, Dede, right, or something, Mendelssohn, or something like that. Usually that's, that's you know, I'm called to the Torah, Menashe ben Reuven, and the like. So, um, so often Jews were called by their hometowns. But um, officially in 1787, around this time, the Austro-Hungarian Empire now requires last names, um, and it's followed by many others. Prussia, Prussia requires them in 1790, France requires them in 1808, 
Tsarist Russia will, will wait all the way till 1835. <laughs> Most of the reason that they require the last names is for census purposes. They want to tax people, they want to draft people, keep track of them, and last names help you do that. Um, names are interesting historically. Today, one finds a new uh, fascination, sometimes obsession, with last names and um, the, corollary, the corollary idea of um, Jewish genealogy. There are big websites about such things. You've you ever done a family tree? I think the craze in Jewish genealogy is connected to the assimilation. Jews are lost today, spiritually empty and hungering, and they're looking for anything, and somehow if they can connect to their last name and with their, their, their ancestors, they feel that that'll fill the spiritual hole in their lives. Um, they, they don't realize what a, the idea would be. Wouldn't it be great if we got out to them the idea that it's not just about who you descend from, but the rich heritage you come from, and shouldn't you learn about that? That's something that's available to you. In any case, um, a little bit about last names and where they come from, and if you know Jews, uh, what, what the source of names are. The new last names will sometimes be very traditional and reflect the old way, like Jakobsen, but they take on a clearly um, a clear influence from the local language that they that they that where wherever they resided. So um, so in in German certainly you'll find son like Moses Mendelssohn, um, but in Polish or Slavic cultures you'll often find witch or wits, right? Yeshayevitz, what? Yeah, yeah. Right, Abramowitz and so on. Um, or Ben Menashe would become. Um, Manischewitz, uh, and a lot of last names are going to be explained this way. What about those last names that like had the occupation of that family? You're, you're ahead of me. Some names were based on the occupations of that family. Like Goldman, Bader. Like Goldman, like Ackerman. Ackerman means plowman. Land is Horish. Um, uh, Metzger, Metzger, or Fleischman means. Fleischman, you can figure um, out. Butcher. Butcher, right? Yeah. Metzger is also butcher. Einstein. Stein is stone. Einstein is somebody who works with stone. A mason, a stone mason. Um, gold or silver or Feinstein were usually uh, jewelry crafters. They worked with jewelry. Um, you're a good guess. Garfunkel or Garfinkel. Diamond dealers. Um, Garfield. Garfield. Garfield, I suggested to you that it was probably changed to make it sound more anglicized. It was very common with Jews coming to the Americas feeling they had to integrate and had to lose their Jewish distinctiveness. Um, Kauf Kaufman is merchant, Wasserman, water carrier. Right. My, uh, my great grandfather, Rabbi Shulam Blyweiss, um, made a living delivering um, soda water. So I don't know. If, if we weren't, I guess a Blyweiss, by the way, I understand, means um, it's some kind of material. It means white lead, but it's some kind of material that they used in construction. Yeah. Bader is a mikvah, mikvah keeper. Mikvah keeper coming from? From Yiddish, Bader. Bader? Okay. What oh, is, no, sorry. Actually, I would find We're, we're doing the history of last names now. What is Pitam from, or Pitam? Oh, that's an excellent question. We have no idea. No idea. Oh, that's interesting. We have no idea. Wow. Father. Is this? Is this? Is this? My father came here. My father lived in well. Yeah. And it was an immigrant. I'm saying he came. He left Latvia in 1937. Okay. Uh, which is unbelievable. The community where he lived in was 
Oh wow, so he survived. Yeah, So Rapitham, is this the is this suddenly a new question for you? Oh no, I was trying to make a suggestion here. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Just give him a try. Okay. Other Okay, um, some, of the, some of the last names that Jews took on had clear religious significance, like Gottlieb. What is Gottlieb? Gottlieb, beautiful name. What a beautiful name. What is Gottlieb? Ohev Hashem. Loves God. Gottlieb. Um, Ehrlich. Does Lieber just love them? Ehrlich. What is Ehrlich? Ehrlich is an honest, an Ehrlich Yid, an honest Jew. Freed. Or Friedman or Friedberg, Fried, happy. Happy Jew. Simcha. Right. Somebody who's happy is Basimcha. Um, often names were acronyms like Beck stands for. What does Beck stand for? B'nai Kedoshim. Yeah. Getz, Gabai Tzedek, Segal, that you should know. Sgan Levi. Segal, Segal I'm is used. Yeah, good. What do you have? Kafshitz. Ooh, what is Kafshitz? He's from a rabbinical family here in Israel. The Kafshitz. Yeah, it's a familiar name. Yeah. But missing Karelitz is Rebson, who just passed away this week. Yeah. She was a Kafshitz from the house. And what is the name? So I was told when it was my son speaking of Ben, about 26 years ago, um, that the Kafshitz are the Yuchistik Kohanim. Wow. That their people take him pay. And the, the legend goes that on their cup that sits sat. Cup oh, sits. Sits on their sits, cap. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, more familiar. I'm, I'm not saying a lot of the obvious ones. Cats, of course, is Cohen Sedek and many, many other examples. Um, I mentioned before um, Sutton or Seton or other variations for Sephardi Jews. Often, de- and this was a proud badge of honor, Sephardi Tahor. And Venaki, the Nunthi in response to remember the whole the whole phenomenon of the conversos, it was those Jews who held out against all odds and maintained their their their, their Yiddishkeit or their their their, their, their Shmiras mitzvos. Um, so that's a bit about how last names evolved and eventually became official. Um, for many Jews, last names would be um, would be. Um, as we said, their claim to their ancestries is the one thing that kept, kept them in some tradition. And sadly, as especially many would start to integrate, they changed the last name as a way of, uh, of abandoning uh, their, their one last link to anything Jew- distinctively Jewish. Um, in this period, in this period, there are a few really unusual, important figures that I'm going to throw out uh, to you as well. And this is such a so much going on. This is the time also a uh, slightly younger, very uh, sl- slightly younger contemporary of all of the above is the Magid of Dubno. You heard the name before? The Magid of Dubno. There are books written about him. Of Yaakov Kranz, came from Belarus. He was a storyteller and one who told parables. Very much, I mean, not the first time. We, we've had itinerant, itinerant pre- preachers before who've gone around and inspired Jews through uh, parables. If you remember back in the Gemara, Rebbe Meir would do this. Um, Rebbe Abahu did this, Rebbe Yitzchak Nafcha. Later on, the, the Abarbanel was, 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 was famed as a storyteller. The Alshech in Svas. Um, Rebbe Shlomo Mocho, who you remember, was one of, the, one of the Jews who went to his death at the stake. Um, they were storytellers, but the Magid of Dubno 
was, became almost synonymous with the term Magid, storyteller. And they asked him, how does he do it? And he, he of course, to answer any question, typically he answered through a mashal, through a parable, as follows. He said that um, walking in a forest, he saw trees with, it was uncanny, every single tree had a target, and right smack in the center of the target was an arrow perfectly shot. And he couldn't understand how that happened. And then he encountered a boy, and the boy was with, a bo- with, 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 with you know, with the bows and, bows and arrows. And he said, how did you do this? And the boy said, very simple. I went to the tree and um, sh- I shot my arrow and then went to this tree afterwards and painted my target. And the Magi very cleverly explains how he comes up with his own trade, with his own art of coming up with parables. He starts with his conclusion and works backwards. The, uh, he was a neutral figure, beloved by everybody. He was, on the one hand, he had a close relationship with the Vilna Gaon. So, uh, and, and yet he would be a, a role model who inspired generations of Hasidic Magidim. Hasidus is, is, is almost incomplete without the, the role of the Magid, the, the charismatic preacher who goes around telling beautiful stories. Um, some people refer to that even as a Hasidic Shemaisa. Uh, in, in this light, he would be um, very much um, a role model in this regard and somebody sort of ab- above and beyond any conflict. Um, this is a time, I don't know if you saw him in Mincha, but you know Ben Adler, who's a Shana Gimel student of ours. So Ben actually descends from the next figure uh, from, on his mother's side. His name is Rav Moshe Maimon. And if that last name strikes you, Rav Moshe Maimon, Rav Yaakov Yosef Maimon, of course, descends from Rambam. Okay, so, so Ben, ben, is, ben can, can trace his descent to the, to the Holy Rambam himself. Um, Rav Yosef cuts a very interesting figure. His dates, he lived between 1741. Am I, this is such a variegated, interesting group of people today. If you're not familiar with these, they really uh, they sit with me. I, 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 they're great galvanizing figures. So Rav Yosef Maimon lived between 1741 and 1822. Um, he was originally from Morocco, and then he, he, he settled in Sfas. Um, and probably the most significant thing he did is after living in Sfas, in 1793, he traveled up to the isolated, some would say even um, uh, completely um, secluded Jewish community in Bukhara. Maybe you know any Bukharan Jews? We usually have a lot of great students who are, who are, from, who are Bukharan Jews. Uh, Bukharan Shuk is just up the street here from us. So he traveled up to Bukhara, and he's credited with, with leading a religious re- revival there. Um, among other things, when he came, they were so isolated, they were so illiterate generally as a community, when he discovered that they were probably, with, they had the best of intentions and they were, they were Yere Shemaim, but almost none of them were keeping kosher. They didn't know how. Um, they were, this is, he traveled there in 1793 to Bukhara. They, um, they, were, they lived under immense persecution, like most Jews around the world. In this case, they were, they were surrounded by Muslims, and they were under, under, under pressure to convert to Islam. Um, when he got there, they only had two copies of the Torah, and between the two copies, only three of the five um, books of the, of the Chumash were represented. They didn't even have a, a complete, they didn't even have a complete Torah. 
Um, and he comes, and he's, he, he finds a very receptive audience. They're incredibly grateful to him and receptive to everything. They, and he teaches them. He comes and he kashas their mikvah, and he tells them how to keep kosher. Um, he builds yeshivas. He founds a new movement that they call the Chibat Sion. The Bukharan Jewish community will actually have a very strong connection. It's a small community, relatively, but they have a strong connection with the eventual movement of Zionism, uh, and they'll be among the early settlers. And that's why uh, just down the street, they build their center in Eretz Yisrael, um, in the area we think of as Meir Sharim, but really they have their own distinct area with a couple of uh, spectacular buildings. And I love to give a tour of that area and tell, tell some of this story. So I'm trying as best I can. I'm sure this is not comprehensive history. I imagine I've neglected certain Jewish communities here and there, uh, but I'm at least trying to give a, a, a general sense of what's going on in the Jewish world, even though we're Euro, you know, I've been sort of Euro, Euro uh, central, centric here, um, because a lot of the Jews are living in Europe. But I do. But we shouldn't forget that there really are Jews represented in lots of different parts, corners of the world. Um, returning to our topic of yesterday, I'm going to come back though after after doing a survey of the Americas and of the Enlightenment and of Bukharian and, and and elsewhere. I'm coming back to um, the the figure uh, to Volozhin. Um, to the figure, to the figure of Chaim ben Yitzchak, who was the Vilna Gaon student, um, and I'm talk about his impact in the world. Um, his dates are 1749 to 1821, and um, most people consider him, including including the, the Vilna Gaon's own sons, consider him to be the the Talmud Muvhak, meaning the primary disciple of the Vilna Gaon, but. I have, I have this in a source. Um, when when Rav Chaim was called that, he was angry, and he corrected. He said, "He said I have, I'm, I'm nowhere near being worthy of such high praise. I'm not his Talmud Mufak. I'm barely his Talmud." He said, um, and he meant it. I mean, the, the, the humility was not the, uh, you know, was was not was 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 a genuine extension of their personality. Um, Rav Chaim Volozhin. Um, has a massive impact on the Jewish world. I'll tell the story now. Um, his, he envisions a whole new approach in the, in the, in the times of enlightenment and, 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 um, and assimilation, how to reach Jews who are assimilating in droves. And the idea, of course, he's the founder of the yeshiva movement. The yeshiva movement. The Musr movement, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, actually traced himself <laughs> like an ideological descendant, he, he considers himself to be a student of Rav Yosef Zundel, who, I'm talking about Rav Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Muslim movement, is a student of Rav Yosef Zundel, who's a student of Rav Chaim Volozhin, who's a student of the original Musr icon of the Vilna Gaon. So they're definitely interconnected. But no, Rav Chaim is the founder of what we call the Yeshiva movement. Um, and I'll tell you why that's so significant. Um, in a moment, we're going to see that there is not a yeshiva in the world that exists today that's that that's not. Um, do I put this carefully? Um, the every yeshiva in the world owes a debt of gratitude, and to a large degree is structured along the model of Rav Chaim's yeshiva in Volozhin, the great Volozhin yeshiva, which is going to play a central role in, in the 19th century in the Jewish world. How did you learn before? Stay with me. That's great, Akiva. That's exactly the question you should ask. So let, let me let me tell this. Let me tell what happened. Now he had the idea. What's the idea? Of course, you learned before. Learning has been our linchpin. That's what's that's what's kept us alive. But the the, the, the structure was informal. 
And he had the idea to, to literally to take on modernity, to, to, to capture the imagination of a generation that was leaving the Jewish fold. He said, we have to do this differently. We have to come up with a dynamic, exciting institution, uh, a yeshiva as there's never been in the past. And when he first had the idea, he suggested it to his Rebbe, the Vilna Gon, and the, the Vilna Gon said, absolutely not. So they shelved it. Um, the legend has it, and this may be a true story, um, that right before the Vilna Gon's death, Rav Chaim submitted it again. This time he was much less confident. If his Rebbe said no once, certainly he would say no it twice. So he suggested the idea again, and when he heard it, um, the Vilna Gon said, oh, what a wonderful idea, of course. You should do this with my blessing. So of course, Rav Chaim asked, why now and why not then? And he said, oh, very, very straightforward. Then, when he wanted the idea of the yeshiva movement, it was your project. It was Rav Chaim's yeshiva movement. But now that I've, beat, I've beaten the arrogance out of you, now it's just simply a worthy idea, and it'll succeed. That's a great story. I mean, so much musr in that story, right? And so many of us, so many of us have valid, viable ideas, but there's too much gaiva. There's too much. There's too much of us invested in it. If you take the gaiva out, the idea could fly. Um, again, the yeshiva movement is an innovative. It's a response. It's a backlash to modernity, to the haskalah, to Hasidus, to all of these, all of these various movements that are overtaking the Jewish world. It's it's a backlash to something that I haven't yet mentioned, which is. Jews now are increasingly <coughs> we're increasingly urbanized, which means when we moved to the big city, often in the big city, Yiddishkeit was lost. And so the yeshiva movement is a direct response to all of these developments as a way of trying to uh, trying to recapture the spirit of the youth. Um, what was yeshiva like before? Of course, there's always been yeshivas. I'm giving a general description of what existed up until now. Obviously, there are going to be exceptions, but generally speaking, there was a yeshiva or two or three everywhere Jews lived. It was head by the local Marid the Asra, the leader of what, the rabbinic leader of whatever town you're in. I mentioned, for example, of course, the note of Yehuda was the Rosh Yeshiva in Prague. Of course, and Prague had a yeshiva, so he was, and he was the Rav in Prague, so he was the Rosh Yeshiva. That, went, that, was, that was a given. It was generally, especially in the smaller places, because Jews often lived in smaller villages before modernity, um, it was an unstructured, informal group. Often they met wherever they could, like in a local shul or around a table in the rabbi's house. You know, they didn't have money. They shared a book. That's why, famously, you know this, that people could learn from different, they could learn one book from different angles. And sometimes people knew only how to read from the diagonal upside down, if that was their angle in the base medrash or in, in, in the Rebbe's house. Um, some of them were larger, some of them were smaller. Um, most learned in what would be called the cheder. Cheder just means room, but it's like the equivalent of elementary school. Most learned at least to the age, starting around three and until they're 10. And because the Jews were so impoverished, it was a luxury to continue learning after, ten, after you were 10 years old. Even though they were very religious, default, they had to go out and get a job. Often, they went to the labor force, whatever, labor, whatever work they could find. Um, this old system didn't have a chance to survive in modernity. If you consider what's unfolding in the world right now, there's no way. And how do we sustain Torah for the generations? 
But Chaim's idea was totally innovative. Um, his idea was to draw students from all around the world, to go around the world to raise money. That was a novel idea. Um, it wasn't always entirely successful, but the advantage was you had your own independent bank account. It didn't depend on local balabotim. You could do your own thing. You could actually have an independent educational institution. There was no local board of directors. Um, <clears throat> Rav Chaim understood human psychology. And um, resisting the other movements, he galvanized the students, got them enthusiastic. He creates this dynamic, deliberately elitist, competitive institution, kind of like the Ivy League. If you want to be anybody in the world, you'll come to Volozhin. Well, I don't know if you know human psychology, but people respond to that. Ooh, I want to go there. I mean, um, what's the old variation? Mar Groucho Marx was also Jewish, so I guess I'm allowed to quote him here. Groucho Marx was credited to say that I would never want to be a member of a club who would accept somebody like me. So, you know, if you're elitist, suddenly everybody wants to belong. You know, and then if you get in, you don't want to go anymore. But that's another dynamic. The, uh, yeah, so, so that was it. It was now a new elitist competitive institution. The Velozhin Yeshiva would be the model. Many others would start. The idea was to take the best students from around the world and reject people deliberately. Um, and then take these, these excellent students and challenge them to become even better. So they were excited by it. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a dynamic place to be. Um, and he had to be because he was competing with so many alternate viable uh, alternates for people that were vying for the young people's interests. Um, most yeshivas in the world today, it doesn't matter if they're Litvish or Hasidish or Sephardi, uh, Haredi or modern Orthodox, they follow the model of Volozhin, meaning most of them try to maintain an independent bank account. Most of them draw students from different places. They're not just local and they're, and they're, and they're competitive. There are downsides to this too. Sometimes the elitism, elitism means that um, good kids are kept, are kept out. There's an inherent unfairness about it too, but you know, sometimes if survival of Torahs is what is at stake, that's what it takes to get the thing over. Uh, and it's, it's a tricky dynamic, and t um, I, I hope to get to this in the modern day. Um, we'll talk about the dynamics in yeshivas today. There's a lot of unfairness in the way things work and who gets accepted, who doesn't get accepted. Part of it is, is also trying to, you know, a yeshiva that suddenly loses its reputation suddenly is no longer effective and can't do the good work that it needs to do. Um, he opens in the small town of Volozhin in 1803. The name of the yeshiva is Eitz Chaim. There'll be other Eitz Chaim yeshivas. There's one, there's a branch dedicated to the Volozhin yeshiva that opens in Yerushalayim. Um, he personally supported the first 10 students. He didn't want, he wanted complete authority. He didn't want anybody's intrusion from the outside. And after he opened, suddenly word got out and it drew interest, again, from around the world. People were clamoring to get in. His wife sold her jewelry to support it. So it was a family, it was a family mom and pop shop, as we say. Um, his approach to learning and paying attention to this, because this has also an enormous impact in the style of learning in many yeshivas in the world. He was, like his Rebbe, not interested in complex peel pool. His goal was to learn, like the Gra, um, the true meaning of the Rishonim, to understand the simple text so we can, we can interpret halacha and eshkafa accordingly. 
Um, they learned, this is also innovative, together in one base medrash. Today it's a given that that's what yeshivas do, but that was, that was not necessarily the case. Often, you know, different groups would meet out in that room and in the hallway and so on. Now it's one dynamic base medrash. Rev Greenwald uh, was just talking to me this morning um, <clears throat> about how we can create in, the, in our base medrash the sound, we have a cold Torah, the sound of Torah with people learning in Chavrusa. That's a base medrash. That's a phenomenon that one associates with the Velozhin Yeshiva. Um, the idea, of course, is that people should see one another learning. There should be a kinas sofrim, which means a competitiveness. Hey, how come that guy is learning so stark and it will motivate me to learn better? Um, there's going to be emotional uplift that you're part of something vibrant and exciting that's infectious. You should feel like you're part of a select group who are going to be the saviors of the Torah world, which indeed to some degree is true. And that, that was the spirit in Volozhin. Um, they had an obligation to learn the Simcha. If there were problems, Rav Chaim was like a Mashkiach personality. He immediately um, you know, talked, about, you know, talked to the students and, and said, we're learning something that should give your, your neshama tremendous um, uh, grat gratification. Um, this idea spread in varying forms to other yeshivas. Generally, in Velozhin and elsewhere, the average learning day, uh, fasten your seatbelts, folks, um, was about 18 hours. That was the average learning day. Um, okay. Some would go 36 hours straight and then sleep for 10 hours and then repeat the cycle. Um, the idea was that somebody always had to be in the base medrash. If there's a moment, Chazal teaches that Torah is not being learned somewhere in the world, the world could spontaneously uh, combust and disappear. Initially, they learned Gan's Shas, all of, all, of the, all of the Shas, but they had very few Sfarim, so they shared. Um, later, about eight to ten different Masechtas would emerge as the choice Masechtas, the popular ones that continue to be the popular ones in most. Certainly, Makos is one of them, um, but we're learning this here. Um, Rav Chaim himself became the prototype of what a Rosh Hashiva would be. His personality, he happened to be an incredibly kind and generous person. Not happened to be, obviously he worked on that. He was a guttle and taira and, and, and personal midos. He was um, totally dedicated to his students. Um, the main problem was were finances, and it was a huge undertaking. Um, and, and it was not, not easy. Uh, in fact, he never achieved independence financially. Um, but the idea that you could go, like Robert Brickman today is now fundraising for us all over the United States, uh, you know, he owes that idea to Rav Chaim. It'll be a model. Um, the last point about Rav Chaim, and then we'll call it a day, the, you remember the Vilna Gaon, we talked about this yesterday, refused to meet with the Balatanya. And part of the reasoning was, if you meet with him, you give him a platform and some kind of legitimacy, um, so, by the time already another generation passes, um, Hasidus had become so established that there was no ignoring it. It wasn't just going to, it was not a passing phase, it was not going to just go away. And so, um, he addressed it, he didn't meet with Hasidic leaders, but he, did, he has a different way of addressing it. He writes a book. The book is, Chaim Velozhin, his most famous book. Nefesh Achaim, a classic, a Musr classic, also a, a complex book of Kabbalah. And it is a clear response to Hasidus as well. It's the first systematic misnagdish approach to Kabbalah. Sort of, but not exactly parallel to the Tanya. Um, 
he never mentions the Tanya, but it's if you know the both works and you know the the, the, the historical context, you understand, you recognize the parallel. Um, he warns, for example, that if you think too much about Tzimtzum, which you remember was the core organizing concept around Chassidus, Tzimtzum Kapshuto, Tzimtzum Shiloh Kapshuto, he says if you think too much about that idea, it's dangerous and probably pointless. He does not encourage it. He, he favors instead focus on halacha. Learn how to be a mensch. Um, he says, in contrast with the Hasidic movement, that learning is central, at least in many parts of the Hasidic movement. He said he criticized the notion of dveikus. If dveikus is devoid of learning and understanding, then it's empty. You know, he, a guy can go to the mikvah and, and feel like he's on fire because he's immersing in the mikvah. But if he doesn't understand what the purpose of the mikvah, that it has to be mem saw and it can't be maim she'uvim, and all that, not only the halachic details, but the hashkafic depth of what a mikvah really is, that's not true dveikus. Only through deep understanding and what we call amelus, hard work in learning Torah, will bring a person to genuine dveikus for the Kaddish Baruch um, I don't often quote Gedolim and their uh, sayings, but this one is so good, it's words to live by. Rav Chaim is, is said to have, have, have said about his own um, approach to life, our purpose in life is to do, not necessarily to accomplish. I'll leave on that note today, but think about those words. Sometimes we're too results-oriented. But in the Kaddish Baruch's world, if we, have, if we really have genuine bitachon, if we realize that he runs the show, our job is just to do the best we can. If it doesn't always yield results, and Velozhin didn't always yield results, um, in the long term, if you do it L'Shem Shemaim, it'll, it'll endure. Have a good evening.